0: Get cracking.
1: Mm-hmm. Good morning, good morning. Thanks for coming. Hello, Chad. Pleasure to see you. We're going to get started as soon as you consent. Good morning. Doug's being quiet. Good job, Doug. It's good. All right, so what we're doing this morning, we're going to finish our little mini-series we're doing on the Ten Commandments. If you were here last week, how many of you were here last week? How many of you that were here last week could tell me the Ten Commandments Using your fingers as a guide. Can you do it? You got it? Stephanie, Stephanie, you want to take a shot at it? You don't have to. Okay, so come on up front so people can see you really well, okay? And you guys can review in your brains, and your own minds here. So go slow so they can try to remember before you do it, okay? All right. So, shh. So, and you can do it along with her, but try to remember. If you want to memorize the Ten Commandments, your ten little fingers can be a, a memory guide for it. So... First commandment. One, there is only one God. Very good. Two, two is too many gods. That's right. So there will be no idols. That's right. have no idols. Three is the window. Uh, well, no. We, we use it a couple different ways. No. We use it, the original way is oh, that it stands for word. word. We honor have him with you? our words. Yes, so do not take the Lord's name in vain. But I suggested that that's not really what that means. Right. And it really is like more like we don't wear him, don't wear bear him, him in gotcha. vain. Yes. Right, we represent, don't misrepresent him, very good. Four, the thumb is resting, okay. so rest on the Sabbath. Right, your sleepy s- sleepy thumb, taking a nap, Sabbath, good. Okay, five, this. Looks like this. Oh yeah, honor
0: your father and mother. Honor your father and mother,
1: yes. Six, six. okay, six Yep. do not murder. Are you uncomfortable with this? I'm very comfortable murdering people. So you're—that's good. That—it troubles you a little bit. It's good. And seven is a man and wife. Um, <laughs> an They're at the altar. Hmm? At the altar. So, so no adultery. No. <laughs> Does that make sense? It kind of lands. Something about being so. Yeah. Be Adul- seventh commandment no. is be married apparently. Yeah, I know. No adultery. Okay. Now eight is. For the, the jail cell, do not uh, steal. steal. Do not yeah, steal. No. Very good. Nine is these four are talking about these five. Yeah, this thumb is leaning into whisper yeah. lies, right? Yeah. To these yep. guys. So, what do we call that? <laughs> Don't bear false, Don't bear false Don't witness be false. against your neighbor. Yes. Yep. Okay, and so I was doing 10 like this, but 10 is, gimme, gimme, gimme. do not. Um, Pevent. That's right. And neighbor your neighbor's wife Excellent. Well done, Stephanie. Alright. <laughs> Woo! Okay. Roe, you wanna do it? Alright, hey Roe, get get the man a chair. Alright, Roe's gonna nail hammer him out. All right, stand up, tall. I'm gonna hammer him. Say can you yell him really loud? I put up, one. <laughs> okay. yeah, put up a one. Remember? One. Can you go oh, here? Hang on. Get you a little more rope. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, right, sorry. There we go. You got this. Only one God. Put the two up. Two is Too many. Don't worship. I don't. Three. Remember that's the W? Honor God with Your words. Your words. We changed some of the some of the things to make them a little easier to understand. Are you going to do this? Yeah. Four, remember? Sabbath rest. Five is honor. God and your your father. (laughs) Honor your father and mother. (laughs) Remember, you like this one. Remember? Put these up. What? Don't. Murder. Don't murder people. Good job. (laughs) (laughs) Don't. don't Adultery. Don't. Don't tell lies. No, this one is don't steal. No. What about this one? Don't tell lies. And then what's this one? Remember? Don't be greedy. Don't be greedy. Woo! Good job. Well done, Rowie. Good job, buddy. Well done, friends. Okay, so now you can remember them and teach them to everybody else. So. Uh, what you need to know about the ten the number of things we want to know about the Ten Commandments but one of them is that they're really summary categories it's not just ten things that we're not supposed to do or must do but they really each one of these ten things is really representative of a broad field of things um, what we're ostensibly looking at is the uh, a new Anglican catechism that's just come out in the last couple of years um, but catechisms have a long long history and one of the oldest and richest and most enduring uh, Catechisms is the Westminster Catechism. Some of you may, be, may have been trained in that. And I think, I think that thing is an absolute work of genius. And it has, uh, at the beginning, as we're talking about the moral law, they give this overwhelming description of what the Ten Commandments is. The question they ask is question 99 in the Westminster Catechism. It says, What rules are to be observed? for the right understanding of the 10 commandments. Okay? So you've memorized these 10 things, perhaps one there's only one God, two's too many gods, right? You know, four is the Sabbath, you know, seven whatever, seven is adultery, all your little thing. But listen to this. This is overwhelming, I think. Absolutely overwhelming. So just settle into this for a moment, okay? Here's what they say. what, is, what are the rules for a right understanding of the 10 commandments? For a right understanding of the 10 commandments, these rules are to be observed that the law is perfect and binds everyone to full conformity in the whole man under the righteousness, righteousness thereof and unto entire obedience forever. We're not even getting started here. So as to require the utmost perfection of every duty and to forbid the least degree of every sin, that it is spiritual And so reaches the understanding, will, affections, and all other powers of the soul, as well as the words, works, and gestures. That one and the same thing in diverse respects is required or forbidden in several commandments. That as where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden. And where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. So... Where a promise is annexed, the contrary threatening is included. And where a threatening is annexed, the contrary promise is included. That, what God forbids, is at no time to be done. What he commands is always our duty. And yet every particular duty is not to be done at all times. That under one sin or duty, all of the same kind are forbidden or commanded together with all the causes, means, occasions, and appearances thereof, and provocations thereunto, that what is forbidden or commanded to ourselves, we are bound according to our places to endeavor that it may be avoided or performed by others according to the duty of their places, and that in, we're almost done, what is commanded to others, we are bound, according to our places and callings, to be helpful to them and to take heed of partaking others in what is forbidden them. Is that not overwhelming? My goodness, right? The law is perfect and binds everyone to full conformity in the whole man under the righteousness thereof and to entire obedience forever so as to require the utmost perfection of every duty and to forbid the least degree of every sin. The Ten Commandments lays out as a summary of the nature and will of God. Any reasonable person who hears what I just said, immediately you should be thinking, I surrender, I give up. There has to be... A plan B if you heard that reading of what I just shared and you're like yeah 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 I got it (laughs) you are living in an unimaginable delusion right (laughs) we are a people but by no means can we possibly do this now you might be able to maybe it'd be impressive if you could memorize a list of ten things most people have not accomplished that much to memorize the list right then, if you were to memorize the list and then have in some vague general sense, well, I've never murdered anybody, well, congratulations, right? Okay? Um, but in fact, the, the, the concentric circles around each of these 10 things is, is enormous. It's just absolutely enormous. When Jesus talks about these 10 commandments, uh, he, he does not give us some little tiny like pinpoint prick, you haven't done this, but he draws these big circles around it, that we are, we are to think about all these things. And how have I done it in my thoughts, in my hearts, in my emotions, in my affections? How have I provoked others to do these things? Where have I not only not forbidden others, but when have I induced others to do evil things on my behalf, right? The whole list of the whole thing should completely overwhelm us. And that ultimately, 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 that is the job of the Ten Commandments. It is not to be the ladder by which you climb to heaven as you congratulate yourself on your self-righteousness. It is the standard of God into which you look and you realize, oh my goodness, there has to be a plan B. For if there is no mercy for a person like me, then there is no hope, not for me and not for, not for any one of us. Making sense? I think the Ten Commandments have often been taught through the ages as if it was simply allowed to do these ten things and we're golden. And it's just just a vain thing. It's not the reality. It does reflect His will. It does reflect His nature. But it does so in a way that should drive us to a sense of our need for a Savior, that we would find life in Him. And then in hearts that are flooded with gratitude, we would then begin to say, how can I demonstrate my appreciation for you? How can I I manifest a sense of gratefulness that you've been merciful to me who cannot possibly keep your rules? To which the answer is, hey, let's take a look at those again and see how can you begin over time to increasingly conform yourself to this list of things? Because this is what he loves, because it's what he himself is like. That's how it's supposed to work. We see what he wants. We see his nature. We see his commands. We recognize our absolute inability to do it. We run to him, we find his grace and his mercy to forgive our many failings, that mercy compels us to gratefulness, that gratefulness compels us to demonstrate it through obedience. Obedience to what? To this list of things that we really still can't do, but now we have the resource of love and gratitude to begin a closer and closer and closer approximation as long as we live our lives. That's how it's supposed to work. Make sense? That's, that's the goal of the whole thing. Catherine. I was just going to say that about the grace, because it, it, I see how important it is to look at the impossibility of what we can do. And then it reminds me of that Rich Mullen song that said, when I fall, let me fall on the grace that first brought me. Yes, yeah. Rich Mullen says so many great lyrics. That we do. We fall. We fall repeatedly throughout any given day. And so, when we fall, if we fall into His grace, with a sense of like, even again, I can come to You, and admit my failings, ask for forgiveness, and then be resourced to get up and maybe walk an extra minute longer this time before I fall into the same trap. That's that is the Christian life. The Christian life is endlessly one of sin and repentance, sin and repentance, sin and repentance, and to whatever extent you've ever been taught the delusion that it's just like you just live in some state of perpetual obedience. The Bible knows nothing of that, and I certainly know nothing of that. We live in a sea of grace, and if we did not, we'd all be condemned forever. There'd be no hope, all right? So that's the Ten Commandments' high-level view. Now, it breaks into two halves. What, what's the dividing line in the Ten Commandments, like, topic-wise? How does it go? Robin? Well, the first, the first five are or four, are birth. That's right. And then the other, other ones are, are people around us. That's exactly right. The first four are vertical, the last six are horizontal. So the first, you can run through them, right? There's only one God, two gods, is too many gods. Don't bear his name in vain and rest on the Sabbath. Okay, those four, those are all God word. And those are the ones we looked at last week, okay? The last six are what we're going to look at today. And they're all about human interaction. They're all about how we engage with one another as we're walking through the day. All right, so let's take a look and we'll just kind of walk through those one at a time. Love to get some of your thoughts on them. and We'll just see what they say. With the understanding that, even the human-based ones? Well, I don't even know. Which are harder? First half, second half? That's not obvious to me. You think they're both equally hard? I don't, is there a general sense of this, Chris? I would say the second half, just because Jesus highlights them a little bit more extensively and makes, in my mind at least, the, the circles bigger. Second half. So you think Jesus talk, Jesus does explicitly, like with, with the rich young ruler, he just goes to the bottom, the second half. He talks about those. So they're harder. They're certainly more obvious, right? It's harder for you to see my failings in the first four, but it's a little, little more apparent in that second half. Robin. You know, when Jesus says, "Love the word the bottom, bottom, of God and all your heart, soul, mind, and strength," and then he goes, "Love your neighbor as yourself." I think the second half go with that. That's exactly right. That's what Robin is saying. Jesus is giving, if the, if the Ten Commandments are a summary of God's moral expectations of us that we cannot meet, that drives us to our need for a Savior, when Jesus says, love the Lord your God, that's the first four and love your neighbor as yourself, that's the last six. So that's a summary of the summary. It's it's exactly right. So let's take a look. The first one here uh, is Exodus 20, if you're following along in a Bible. you find the Ten Commandments, by the way, twice. They show up in Exodus 20 and also in Deuteronomy 5. Because Deuteronomy is a recap. It means deuteronomos, means the second law. It's the second telling of all these things. It's It's a speech that Moses gave, and he basically quotes himself. So in Exodus 20, verse 12, it says this. This is the fifth, right? Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Do you guys know what's unique about this one that the New Testament specifically comments on? That's it. It comes with a promise, right? In Ephesians 6, listen to this. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And then it quotes this. Honor your father and mother. And Paul adds this little note, which is the first commandment with a promise, quote, that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. Okay, so what does it mean? Honor your mother and father. Does it mean you have to obey your parents? What do you think? Who's on, does does it, what is that? It's part of it. It's part of it, okay. You think it's more than it or less than that or sometimes more, sometimes less? More than, okay. So one function is obedience. Does anybody want to say you don't always have to obey your parents? And to be on team that... Okay, when do you not have to obey your parents? What's that? It depends on what they want you to do. What if they want you to do something that you don't want to do? Well, they don't want to do it. Yeah, okay. So the, the question... of There's a couple of lines on this that we should think about. Um, how many of you are, like, say, over the age 30? Let's say that. Okay, we'll just start. We'll make it nice and general. Do you... Do you need to obey your parents? Yeah. Yes. Do you need to obey? I said obey, not honor. Do you need to obey your parents? Do I need to obey my mom? Yeah, they're both dead. Yeah. Wait, say it, say it again? They're both dead. Well, I'm sorry. Wait, so everybody be quiet I still can't hear. What? Yeah, your parents are dead. Oh, your parents are dead. Okay. All right. So you don't have to obey your dead parents. Okay, this is true. A little, little painful, but true. Okay. So. You guys, if you're an adult, you don't need to obey your parents. Do you, is, this, is this controversial to you? Is this strange to you? Is this strange to those of you that have adult children and you're mad that they don't come home for Thanksgiving? Because they don't have to obey you anymore, okay? So the Bible, the, this commandment is not children obey your parents. It's children honor your parents. And that means different things at different times in life. Sadie needs to obey her mom. Because she still lives in my house. She's still, she was a, not merely, she will always be our daughter, but she is presently a child. But only just for a little bit more, sweetie. You're just almost out, okay? Right? But Sadie's obligation to honor her mom, and to a much greater extent to honor me, is (laughs) persistent, okay? Is persistent. But very, like my, my oldest son, Benjamin, Benjamin owes me no obedience. He's an adult, he has a house, he's getting married, he's a grown up. And he doesn't have to obey me. He does have an obligation to honor me, even as I have an obligation to honor my mom. But this might be helpful for those of you whose children are about to become adults. You guys, they don't have to obey you anymore. You're not, like, you, the whole point was to create an independent adult that didn't have to obey you anymore. They, they should honor you. They should be kind to you. But the obedience thing is a limited, is to a limited extent. Some of you have noticed, and we won't, this will not, will not turn this into a marriage counseling session. But some of your marriages have floundered because your spouse still thinks they need to obey their parents. And they don't. This is why the Bible says, for this reason, a man... Well, what, what does Genesis say about this? About what is the Genesis language that, that taps into this? For this reason, a man will do what? Leave. What that means, it doesn't just mean you move out of the house. It means I'm no longer under your authority. Right? So you're going to leave your mother and father. you cleave to your wife. You have, a, you have a new priority. Your mom is no longer your top priority, it's your wife. All right, this, is what, this is how this game is supposed to be played. But the honor never expires, never, never, never. You don't have to obey, but we are to speak well of, to serve, to love, to be, to be beneficial to. And then when children are you know, actually children, they, they, honoring does include obedience, right? Make sense? Now, what, what's another, if we kind of clean that up a little bit, you understand honor and obedience are not the same thing, who else does this apply to? Because it's not just your mom and your dad. Do you know this? It's this a summary. Right? Darian? People of Lord. That's right. The call to be obedient to authority is really predic is, is is rooted in this commandment. So you honor your mother and your father, your, you know, your those that raised you and loved you. But when we fail, when we are failing to be submissive to authority, to our, any legitimate—and not all authorities, not everyone who claims to be an authority is a legitimate authority—but when you are mouthy to your boss, when you are disrespectful to your pastor, when you are just, you know, outright disobedient to governing authorities, you're, you're breaking this commandment. There's a broader call to this, right? And in various ways, at various times in life, we have an obligation to be obedient, but always to honor those above us. That's what this commandment is about. Okay, does that make sense? Controversy? Can you live with that? Keep, okay, Tommy? Uh, one of the uh, nature of the society back then, um, obedience was uh, kind of a sumptive no uh, to, to a decent degree. Well, so I, so any, any given culture, um, the, the rules are constantly changing in any given culture. And sometimes we can look back at the, at the era that the Bible was written, certain things were culturally present. But unless the scripture in, you know, kind of encapsulate them as normative, then it doesn't carry over for us, right? So we could look and say any number of things at different moments in time that some culture is gonna say. But I think the Bible is pretty clear that the adult, that adults don't need to obey their parents in, this, in as much as they have, they have left and become that. Even if there's time, even we don't need to go back a 1,000 years. You can, go, you can go, I'm sure, you can go to, we'll just pick on the Italians for, for whatever reason, right? Like I'm sure that there are, Italian-American cultures, where the assumption is that adult children obey their mom. And my, I am telling you, they are mistaken. It's not true. Even if, even if the cultural pressure says so, that's not a transcendent reality. And lots of cultures have lots of things that are bent or distorted, including our own, to be sure. For sure, for sure. Okay? So not everybody has to obey for a perpetual thing, but we must always honor. Let's go to the next one because I'm we're taking too much time. How about 2013? What's that one? So number six, you shall not murder. Why not? <laughs> Cain and Abel. Okay, that's the first instance of murder. But when the Bible says you may not murder people, why can't you? Image bearing. There we are, and we talked about image bearing the entire time last week. Once again, it shows up. What's the, unpack the, the image bearing a little bit? Uh, God made us in His image. Us being in His image, we are represented as a what? That's right. Murder, murder. versus okay. next you, yes. they're, they're image bearer. Okay. That's right. This is in Genesis nine six. It says, "Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed." For in the image of God has God made man. The reason you you really can kill a cow, like you can, you're allowed to do that, but you really can't murder a human being. Reason. Is there an image bearer? The Image bearing is such a massively important theme throughout the scriptures. Uh, I mean, it it shows up in a million different ways. But one of these things here is the ground of why we're not allowed to murder other people. Okay, does murder mean kill? Is there ever an instance where you can kill a person even though they're image bearers? Okay, on what basis would you make that claim? Three. Three? Gary, what do you mean by this? Wartime, self-defense or defense of your family. And if you're a government official and the person has been tried, uh, found guilty of murder and sentenced to die, you can be executed. Okay, so Gary's saying three instances in which killing is justified. That killing is not a violation of the prohibition on murder. One, you said, was wartime. There's such a thing as war, and the Bible clearly sees it now. War is... Terrible. It's not permanent, right? The day will come when we'll beat our uh, swords into plowshares, right? There will be a time where there is no no more of this. It's it may be just, but it's always awful, It's terrible, terrible. But there's a place for it. We see it clearly in the scriptures. Self defense. You're saying if if your life is being threatened, that and another, you can protect or your family. Very good. And your children or your wife. And then what's the final? Um, the government is legally allowed to kill. People who are found guilty and the guilty is death penalty. And this, the state grants to, or God grants to the state the ability to take life. Now, some of these things that you're saying, that is a very normal, very standard argument, and some would contest even that, right? There's a Christian, we talked about this a few weeks ago, Christian pacifism that would say, even in that, Jesus says, don't resist an evil person, that we, we suffer these things. We're not gonna, they don't, we don't have time today to get into that whole thing, but generally speaking, there's, a, there's been a broad assumption that, yes, that there are not all forms of killing are murder. Murder is unauthorized, illegal, uh, wrong sort of a killing. And so we, we can leave it there for, at the moment for that. Well, maybe we can't. I don't know. We'll see where we go. Yeah. Uh, what, uh, one of my sources here says that the Hebrew word used here describes the unlawful taking of innocent life. That's right. Oh. Uh, so I think that clarifies the issue to me. Yes. And so there's a, there is a difference between killing. I think the King James says, you shall not kill. Um, and I think it's a poor translation. It really is a distinction to say murder. And in fact, if you, if you heard it, the Genesis 9-6 that I just read to you has both halves of this argument embedded in it. Genesis 9-6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Right? So there's the, this first action is unacceptable, and the second action is commanded, right? So, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. That really is the basis of the idea that the state has the authority to carry out um, capital punishment. However, I want, one thing I want to say in an in a, in a, in a environment, in a country that has had capital punishment be one of our fundamental things forever, we can say that yes, when somebody kills somebody, not only, not only is the state authorized, well, I should say this not only when somebody murders somebody is the state authorized to carry out capital punishment, but they're obligated to, okay? That would be a very hard biblical argument to defend, okay? Can you guys rattle off the names of any people who committed murder in the Bible? David. David. Moses. Moses. Yeah. Okay. There's another big one. Paul. Paul. That's a pretty good list right there, Okay. And not one of them were killed for having killed someone. Okay, now you could say that David was, you know, he was the king, as an agent of the state, he was authorized to do that. Well, maybe, but he seemed pretty pretty generous with the way he would wield that authority under times, right? Um, And certainly the killing of Bathsheba's husband was totally out of bounds. So what we find is not only a prohibition against murder, but we find even in this, the unbelievable mercy of God. You yourself have received mercy in just a myriad of opportunities. And there is a place. I do believe there's a place for self-defense. I do believe that there is a time where war is the least awful solution to a problem, right? And I do believe that the state is authorized to, care, to execute, well, I shouldn't, that's the unfortunate word choice, to execute the power of execution. But it doesn't, the Bible does not make the case that they, we, that must be the place we go to. It's, it's really treated as a last resort, in a world that is as dreadful as ours and where we need as much mercy. We should be thoughtful about the total biblical picture of that. Okay? So we don't, we don't murder. Jesus, of course, takes this and famously extends it. What, how does Je- What is the circle that Jesus draws around, you shall not murder? Hate. Hate. Does that get a little diceier for you? Have you hated significantly more people than you've murdered? Is that, is that a fair fair guess? Yeah. Okay? So... Again, man, we, we, we cast ourselves at his mercy. We are guilty of so much. Okay, how about this one? Uh, gen, uh, Exodus 2014. Seventh commandment. What's that one?: You shall not commit adultery. OK, What is adultery?: Covenant breaking.: Covenant breaking. What is it? What's the most just give me the, give, give, be as dictionary-like as you can. What do you think? What is adultery? Sex outside of marriage. What if it's two unmarried people? Is that adultery? No. So, it's a yeah, it has, like adultery, adultery kind of assumes, like here, here's from, from our catechism, it says this, adultery is, is any sexual intimacy between persons not married to each other, at least one of whom is married to another. Does that feel good? I mean, does that feel, I, I think that's right. Okay? Those of you that are old enough to remember the Bill Clinton days, there was a debate of like, yes. what's really sex? What counts as sex, right? Because maybe not all things do, except, here's a hint. If you walk in and your wife is doing it with somebody else, and it feels like adultery, it's probably adultery, right? Okay, Adultery is any sexual intimacy between persons not married to each other, at least one of whom is married to another. But once again... Jesus says, oh, you're, you're drawing too small of a circle around this. What does Jesus do with this? Lustfully. Yes. What is, can anybody quote him directly? Go to Matthew 5 if you want to. What, is, what does he actually say? There you go. Michael got it. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully uh, commits adultery in his heart. Okay? So what, So there's two things you want to see here, I think. One He's drawing, this is kind of like what he does, as murder is to hate, so adultery is to lust. You feel that parallel that he's setting up? So he's drawing a much bigger circle. Um, You've hated more people than you have murdered. Yes? Have you lusted after more people than you've committed adultery with? Probably by significant numbers, right? Okay, Jesus is drawing the circle. But sometimes we will draw a false equivalency. Michael quoted it accurately. Oftentimes, Jesus is quoted inaccurately on this. Jesus did not say that if you committed, if you look at a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery, period. He's not saying that, right? He's not drawing an equivalence here. What's the difference between saying, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart, how is that different from, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery, period? How would those two statements be different? Sam? You can't get a divorce over <laughs> looking lustfully at another woman because it's just in your heart. It's not like you're actually going it. Okay, this is good. And I, I doubt they heard you in the back. Sam said you can't get a divorce because your spouse has looked at someone lustfully. Do you feel that? If you could, then we would be living in a no-fault divorce at all times. And I mean that quite, quite sincerely. He's not. If, if, if they're equivalents... If lust equals adultery and adultery is grounds for divorce... ...then lust is grounds for the divorce and we just live in a... ...all marriages are open to to dissolution at a moment's notice. He's not saying that. So what is he saying? Ellen, you want to jump on that? Well, I think that if you have lust... ...it's basically a sin against yourself. When you actually commit adultery... ...there are other parties that are involved in the sin... ...whether it's the person you commit adultery with, it's your spouse... And so the sin is magnified in affecting more people. It absolutely is. This is is completely true. So what does it mean to commit adultery in your heart? What does that, it's, what is he saying here? This is just worth taking, and then we're going to jump into the rest. We won't stay for here forever, but Michael. It's like the, he brings it to a spiritual level because the the greatest commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and that Jesus translates all of these physical actions into a spiritual parallel to hate, is an emotion and a thought process. Yes. moving from the physical into the heart and the mind, so translating and showing the corollary parallels between our spiritual walk and our word to love God with our heart, soul, and mind. It's that moving from the external to the internal because the, the prophecies in the Old Testament to give a new heart all of these things move to that internal peace. Yes. Enough, um, to, do, to do right. That's right. Okay, so what Michael is saying is what Jesus is doing here, and this, is, and this applies certainly for murder and adultery, which Jesus makes explicit, but it's true for the whole list, right? Is there is this physical, outward, external manifestation of things, and we can congratulate ourselves that I haven't done that, so, you know, what a good boy am I? But Jesus is saying, well, hang on, hang on, hang on, roll the tape back. Let's go back to the let's go back to the inner part that's more hidden, that's more secret, and that eventually, but inexorably, leads to the external. And your your problem didn't start. Your problem did not begin when you finally uh, had an affair at the office. It didn't start there. It started way back here in this secret inner life. Here's how James puts it. If you want to go to James, I think this kind of I think James one kind of bridges the gap from. Exodus 20 to Matthew 5. Listen to what he says. Uh, This is James 1.13. Tell me if this is not... I'd be shocked if anyone in this room had not ever felt this progression or regression. James 1.13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But, here it is. Each person is tempted when... They are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Do you feel that? That's how it works, right? And so your desire, this says, James says, each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire. We have almost an axiom in our kind of modern therapeutic culture that all of your emotions are valid right that all of your feelings are like that you know they're they're proper we can't critique another person's feelings that's the biggest load of garbage are you kidding me like my will is corrupted i do bad things My thoughts are corrupted. Sometimes my thinking is futile, and I completely misunderstand the world around me. But my emotions, man, those things are pristine. They are flawless. I'm always precisely as happy. I mean, do you feel the absurdity of this? Is it like your desires, your emotions, the things that bring you joy are very often out of keeping with the things that give God joy. You're sad about things that he's delighted in you're a little bit angry, or he's a lot angrier, or you're a lot angry, or he's just a little bit, that's not that big of a deal, right? Our emotions are all over the place. And what James is saying is, explicitly here, he says, we ha- our own evil desires, not only are they evil, not only do they entice us, but they drag us away. And suddenly we are, have you ever been a slave to your desires? Ever? Can you think back that far? How long has it been? How long has it been? Has it been less than 24 hours? <laughs> has it been since you got up this morning that you, were, you found yourself dragged away by your desires? It's just our issue, right? And so sin always starts here. Of course it starts here. But then it goes and it gives birth and it gives birth and, it, and then it's death. And Jesus is saying, don't just draw the lines out here, right, at the brink of death. Let's roll this thing back to see it all starts right here in our heart. Make sense? So they're not equivalent, but, but one leads the other. And if we don't, if we don't, you know, attack it in the cradle, it's going to grow up to a full-size monster. Okay. Robin and then Catherine. Yeah, the scripture that says the heart is deceptive. Yep. Jeremiah 17. Or is it 17? 7? Jeremiah, Jeremiah something. 17. Am I wrong? Whatever it is. Yes. The heart is deceptively wicked. Who can know it? There's something wrong with us. Our hearts lie to ourselves as much as we lie to anybody else. Right. For sure. Catherine, and then we'll go to Dan. That, that scenario um, made me think of Bundy. Do you all remember Bundy? Bundy? In prison. Oh, Ted Bundy? Ted Bundy. Yeah. And when he got converted, he, he warned everybody. It started just in my neighborhood. Yeah. And some books that some teenagers <coughs> had, and I thought so. Good. He said, that's where it started. That's right, and that is always the case with sin. It always starts small, and if we don't kind of nip it there, it just grows and it gets bigger. You're not, none of us are smart enough, strong enough, better enough for that not to happen on us. Dan? This one, I mean, the adultery thing is also an image-bearing issue, that if we are to be demonstrating God's perfect love and to have that be the hallmark of our relationships with and our thoughts about others, must is a corruption of that in inappropriate situations. And, you know, I, my sense is that that's one of the places Jesus is giving warning us. Look, you're supposed to be representing the Father. That's right. That we, and Paul says in, in 1 Timothy that we should, that older men or men should treat other women as sisters with absolute purity. And that's not been abided by in billions of instances, right? For sure. Okay, let's keep going. 2015, what is 8? Eight, the 8th commandment. What's this one? You shall not steal, okay? You're in prison behind the bars. You shall not steal. I think that we might be able to say at an obvious level, this rules out shoplifting, right? (laughs) But, and my guess is that not many in this room are tempted to shoplift, but maybe you have had times when you were, right? And you could therefore say, I'm not a shoplifter, check, but that would be an error because there's a million other ways to steal, Right. How does this play out? What, is, what are the circles of this? Where are we tempted to rob, <coughs> to violate this commandment? You shall not steal. Uh, I'm not hearing the real words. Michael, loud. Uh, New Testament, um, uh, Jesus co- uh, kind of addressed it, the uh, giving to uh, tax evasion. and uh, For sure. Once. Yes, Absolutely. So paying Jesus squarely places paying taxes in the same category, right? It's things like not paying your debts would be stealing. Not paying, if you owe taxes, pay taxes. Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding except... Do you know the only exception? (laughs) Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Plagiarizing a paper pirating software, right, especially back in the day, like in the pre-Napster era, right, where everybody was like constantly just stealing music or stealing Microsoft Word. Um, Not tithing is characterized as robbing God, right? He has claimed ownership of this. Um, Wanna make it more uncomfortable? Keep going. What about when God says vengeance is mine? Huh, when we take that, that is a fascinating approach to that. Yeah, so, so you're saying that when we steal what, is on, what only belongs to the Lord, only to him belongs the right to enact vengeance. That is, a, that is essentially a violating of this. I think that is, I've never thought that before, Herrick, but I think that's a, you can make a very strong case for that. When I take things that are not mine, you could. Paul will put um, not adultery, but, but premarital sex in this category. He's going to say in First Thess 4 that no one should defraud his brother. That is theft by deceit. That when you're having sex with somebody who is not your spouse, you are pretending to be their spouse and claiming what only belongs to their spouse or their future spouse. That, that, that sexual immorality is defrauding someone. It is theft by deceit. It's a violation of this commandment, for sure. Yeah, Jim? You can steal an employer's time. Man, that's a great thing. You're getting paid for 40 hours of work. How many hours are you giving them, right? How much? How much of your time are you spending chatting or not doing the job? Yeah, Catherine. Fraud by deceit. Like I was thinking, that if you if you lie about your co-worker <coughs> because you want the position that he's entitled. That's right. And that's stealing. Am I? Are you? That's exactly right. If you're, if you are, whether you are plagiarizing a paper to get a better grade, so you're in a better position to get a better job than the person who actually did the work, you're lying about a coworker so you can steal their promotion from them, that you can get the raise that they don't get. That's theft. It's you're robbing. You're stealing. Uh, one thing you guys haven't mentioned that the Bible is pretty clear about is failing to serve the poor, and that is tr- that can be troubling in a context when you feel like it's mine. God's perspective on your wealth is that he gave it to you so that you can bless others with it. And this is, this is tough in a, in a fiercely capitalistic, what's mine is mine and I earned this all by myself. Never mind, you would not be anywhere near as wealthy as you are if you didn't live in a country that provided the, the resources and the infrastructure that you have. Like, there's a million ways that we violate this without even being thoughtful about it. Here's Isaiah 10. It says, woe to those who make unjust laws... To those who issue oppressive dec- decrees to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey, and here it is, robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? You live in a system that is designed to disadvantage people. Full stop. Okay? Many And pretty much... If you have succeeded in this environment, it's because you've learned the rules of this game. But this game is rigged. Do you know this? The whole inflationary system is designed, like, it, it, those of you that have encountered some measure of wealth, it is not because you worked and earned your money, although you may have done that, but it's because you figured out that the only way to get wealthy is to purchase appreciating assets. Do you know this? This is how. I mean, if you've never had it put in those, in those negative terms, The only way you get wealthy is that you purchase appreciating assets. Because if you don't do that, your cash is losing value day by day by day. It's been particularly true for the last, like, 24 months, but it's been been true for years and years and years. If you're paying rent, your rent goes up every month. You buy a mortgage that stays flat while the house increases in value. And for the millions of people in this country who cannot get out of generational poverty, it's because they either haven't figured out or haven't figured out how to get out of a deflationary, an inflationary system where their, wealth, their, their, their money is being eroded annually. It's theft. It's theft via inflation. It's the government's secret tax, frankly. It's, a ta- it's an invisible tax to defraud the poor and to, en- and to enrich the wealthy, those that know how to buy appreciating assets, okay? We won't go further down that road at the, mo- at the moment, <laughs> but the game is rigged and people are being robbed all the time, right? The fact that you bought a house doesn't mean that you're a thief at all. I own a house, and it's just lovely. I'm glad I do. But you should recognize that we are, there's a million ways that we violate the do not steal other than straight up shoplifting. And the world is very complicated, and we should be thoughtful about how we love and serve the people around us. Okay, what is number nine? got to be quick here. Nine, what is nine? (coughs) Don't bear fall witness, okay? I'm going to make this real simple. Just never lie to anybody about anything at any time. Is that good enough? All right, great. And then 10, gimme, 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 you shall not covet. Man, that is hard. You covet on a minute-by-minute basis. Don't cover your neighbor's wife. Don't cover your neighbor's stuff. I think it's specific about like oxen. I can say with honesty, I've never coveted an ox in my life. I don't think, to my knowledge, okay? Uh, But lots of other things I have coveted, right? So at this point, what it should be, my whole hope, I want to make you despair, that you're like, I am screwed. Yes, that's the point. You've blown all of these. Like, it's just, it's, it's bad. We, we are not a righteous people, okay? And so when you get to this point, I'm going to read you something else from Westminster. Listen to this. We'll end with this. They ask, of what special use is the moral law, the Ten Commandments to Christians? That's the question. Here's the answer. Those that believe in Christ are delivered From the moral law as a covenant of works, so as thereby they are neither justified nor condemned. You, if you are hidden in Christ, you're not condemned by the law and you're not justified by it. It's not its function in your life. But it is of special use to show you this how much they are bound to Christ for his fulfilling it and enduring the curse thereof in their stead and for their good, and thereby to provoke them to more thankfulness and to express the same in their greater care, to conform themselves thereunto is the rule of their obedience. What that means is when you look at the law in the biggest and broadest circles, in the heart level, in the action level, in all of the myriad implications, whatever you see in the law, you look over to Jesus and you see, my goodness, he did that. To the utmost degree. He, alt- he honored his mother and father to the utmost degree. He was obedient even to the point of death. Death on a cross. Right? He didn't steal anything from anybody. He paid taxes when taxes were due. He paid honor when honor was due. He didn't only not steal, but he paid back what we stole. What we see in the law is a portrait of the perfections of Christ. That he perfectly obeyed. The jot and tittle of every bit of it. Not only for himself but in your place and for your good. And then not only did he perfectly obey every demand, every command of it, but then he suffered the full consequence of our failure, of your failure to do it. In every way that you blew this, he suffered the consequence of that failure. And what's supposed to happen for us is that every time we see the law, we glance over to Jesus, we see the perfections of his obedience, the misery of his punishment, It floods our hearts with gratitude and love and appreciation. It makes us worship. It makes us soft. And in that softness, we then turn and we go. We look and we say, I have not been honoring of my father. I have disregarded him. I have been unkind. I have not done what I was supposed to do. And yet I live in a sea of grace. And that grace will slingshot me around to go and make the phone call that I was supposed to make yesterday or last night or six years ago. And I will finally, I'll do it. Not because I think that thereby I become righteous, but I do it because thereby I express my gratitude for the one who has loved me so utterly. That's how the thing is supposed to work. Dig it? it. All right. That's all we got. We'll see you next week.